0: we'll we'll get back started (coughs) Um, and we'll move on to Abraham but uh, the the Abrahamic covenant but before we do it were there any lingering questions about Noah all right Um, as you're moving uh, through the the various manifestations of the covenant of grace after Noah and the Noahic covenant the next one in the scriptures is the Abrahamic covenant, or the covenant with Abraham, or if you want to, technically the covenant with Abram uh, before he his name is changed uh, to Abraham. And you know, doubtlessly, the the Abrahamic covenant is one of the the best known and the uh, most widely discussed of the uh, various covenants. Uh, Certainly, it's a, a critically important covenant, as as all of them are. Um, John Murray, in the little book by him that y'all are reading, uh, he has some incredibly lofty words for the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, if you've come across that, on uh, page four of his the of his Covenant of Grace booklet, he says this. He says the redemptive grace of God in the highest and furthest reaches of its realization is the unfolding of the promise given to Abraham and therefore the unfolding of the Abrahamic covenant. You know, so according to Murray, the very farthest reaches of God's redemptive grace is no no more and no less than the unfolding of the covenant with Abraham. You yeah, know, that's pretty, pretty high... Uh, pretty high commendation. And certainly the Abrahamic covenant is uh, particularly
1: critical in a number of areas of theology. It's uh, particularly important in our understanding of justification. Uh, It has a lot to tell us about uh, our understanding of covenant signs and seals, particularly in regard to circumcision. Um, You only need to glance through the New Testament and see the number of times that Paul alone refers to Abraham, or uses Abraham as a paradigm uh, to see that the Abrahamic covenant is critically important. Um, And it seems to me that because of that critical nature of the Abrahamic covenant, and because of the attention that it receives, not only in the New Testament, but also in uh, other theological writing, it seems to me important at the outset to remind ourselves that the Abrahamic covenant is critically important. But it's not critical because it establishes a new direction or a new method uh, within God's covenantal work. Uh, It's critical because it brings a remarkable new clarity to what God already has been doing. Uh, It brings radically increased clarity to God's eternal covenantal plan of redemption. Uh, The Abrahamic covenant isn't a, a departure in any sense. It's not a departure from the Noahic covenant. It's not a departure from... Uh, God's promise in Genesis 3, uh, but rather the Abrahamic covenant marks more of a a monstrous leap forward in the clarity of God's revelation to his people of what he always has been doing. Uh, Given the fact that it is um, such an enormous uh, leap forward in God's disclosure of his covenantal purposes and his covenantal method, uh, given that fact, it's not surprising, or it ought not be surprising, that the Abrahamic covenant and its, uh, the scriptures' disclosure of it is kind of spread out over a couple of disparate places in the scriptures. Uh, with Noah, has you know, an example, uh, kind of a counter-example, with Noah, the entire covenant is revealed in a one fixed unit of the scriptures. If you want to know about the Noahic covenant, you look at Genesis 6-9. It's one unit of scripture, Uh, And even most of that is filled with a a
0: narrative of the events of the flood itself. Uh, The Noahic covenant is focused in one specific spot. But with the Abrahamic covenant, the the description of it and the
1: uh, revelation of it is much more diffuse throughout uh, Genesis. Uh, You get the first uh, important information about it in Genesis chapter 12,
0: where the the covenant is, I think you, you could say it's, inaugurated, it's commenced in Genesis 12. Then in
1: Genesis 15, you find the covenant being formally ratified, uh, solemnized with a covenant ceremony. In Genesis 17, you get the fullness of the covenant being further disclosed. And then even in Genesis chapter 22, you continue to get even greater clarity uh, to the covenantal relationship between God and Abraham. Some people would include Genesis 22 is part of the fuller picture of the the covenant itself. Some people wouldn't, but
0: um, the the, the point
1: is that the Abrahamic covenant uh, is first seen in a glimpse in Genesis 12, and then it it gets increasing clarity uh, in various points uh, in the the early, the first half of Genesis. Uh, You get increasing refinement and clarity being brought to the covenant. And it's important to bear that in mind. It seems like a rather uh, self-evident observation that the Abrahamic covenant comes up in a couple different places. But it's actually quite important to remember as you're considering the Abrahamic covenant. So a lot of times people will look at just one of those places or they'll look at
0: most of them, but they'll leave one of them out and they'll base their understanding of the Abrahamic covenant on what's left. So basically they start out trying to understand the Abrahamic
1: covenant by a truncated version of the scriptures disclosure of that covenant so it's not surprising that you end up with a little bit of a skewed presentation of the covenant itself Uh, an example of that uh, would be in uh, the reading out of Murray on uh, Abraham Uh, if you have done that I don't know whether you notice as you're reading through but he uh, on page 4 of the little booklet Murray refers to his words are this. He says, this Abrahamic covenant so explicitly set forth in Genesis 15 and 17. Now you notice there that Murray excludes Genesis chapter 12. The events of Genesis 12 don't play a major role in Murray's understanding of the Abrahamic covenant. And the result of that is that he begins his consideration of the covenant in Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, as we'll see in turn, in Genesis 15, the emphasis is undoubtedly upon the bestowal of divine grace and favor, as Murray would put it. Uh, So Murray starts out with understanding the covenant, um, kind of a step into the covenant, and then that uh, kind of foundational role that Genesis 15 plays in his understanding then ends up in his interpretation really kind of mitigating the force of Genesis 17. Uh, Murray, in in seeing the way that he treats Abrahamic Covenant, it serves as kind of a a case study, I guess you could say, uh, to remind us how important it is to keep the entire breadth of the Abrahamic Covenant in front of us when we try to understand what that covenant means, uh, what it contains, what it teaches. Uh, We have to bear in mind the, the fullness of this somewhat uh, diffuse disclosure of the Abrahamic covenant. And we'll see in a minute why it is that Murray excludes Genesis 12, um, but just as an example of the importance of keeping all of uh, the the various revelations of this covenant in mind as we try to understand it. But in addition to keeping several different places in the scripture in mind understanding the covenant, we also uh, in order to grasp the the full significance of the Abrahamic covenant we also need to set all of those scriptural passages in their proper context. We need to understand you can't just dive into Genesis chapter 12. You have to have some awareness of what's occurring in the scriptures at that point uh, to grasp some of the particular emphases of the covenant. Um, So we'll take a couple of minutes just to try to set the context for the Abrahamic covenant. Um, We just spent a little bit of time going through uh, the covenant with Noah, how God had been forwarding his covenantal purposes with Noah and through Noah, and that takes you up through the first half of Genesis chapter 9. But before you even get out of Genesis chapter 9, you see that once again, the sinfulness of man... and in chapter, in the second half of chapter nine, it's even the abject sinfulness of God's own people. Now, that sinfulness is throwing creation into disarray again. Now, no sooner has God judged wickedness and started over, in a manner of speaking, with Noah and his family, than Noah himself uh, starts to to drag everyone into sin again. Now, in Genesis nine verses eighteen to twenty-eight, now you read of Noah's sinfulness, uh, his. His drunkenness, his nakedness, and then you also get there the sin of Ham, his son, uh, who looks scornfully at his father's nakedness. He gossips about his father's sin. You know, very, very quickly, uh, things are back in a pretty bad condition. Uh, you are immediately confronted with the graciousness of God's patience with humanity. Even his people are wicked. Uh, and he, God is. Uh, long-suffering with them. You can reminded that before you can get out of Genesis 9. You get into Genesis chapter 10, you get the table of nations, the, the descendants of each of Noah's sons, and then you get into Genesis 11, and in the first nine verses there in Genesis 11 is the account of the Tower of Babel. And once again, uh, just as you had gotten a sense prior to the flood, uh, at the Tower of Babel, you again see the wickedness of man reaching somewhat of a fever pitch um, in Genesis 11 verses 1-9 through 9, the, uh, mankind undertakes this enterprise to build this tower and the scriptures seem to be um, drawing to our attention on the one hand that the entire enterprise that mankind undertakes with the Tower of Babel the entire enterprise is rebellious And we have seen with the Noahic covenant that after the flood and after Noah and his sons had come off the boat, that God had instructed them once again to multiply and fill the earth. He essentially told them to disperse, to fill the earth, uh, to subdue the earth uh, as mankind was created to do. But then here in Genesis chapter 11, what is man doing? He's congregating in one specific place. He's congregating on the plain of Shinar, uh, as the, the passage tells us, and the, the point seems to be make, being made in the scripture that regardless of what man does on the plain of Shinar, his very presence there and his congregating there is itself rebellious. He'd been told to disperse, to fill, and to subdue the earth, and instead they're huddled together in one place uh, on the plains of Shinar. Shinar. Uh, But of course their rebellion goes much further than that. Uh, They undertake uh, a specific action uh, that's particularly bad. In verse 4 of Genesis 11, uh, it says that uh, that the the people, uh, it tells us about what the people are doing. And it indicates indicates there that the, the descendants of all of Noah's sons are involved. Um, it's not as if it's just the sons of Ham doing this. There's there's no indication that it's not all of humanity, and that seems to be the, uh, the thrust of the text that this is all of humanity uh, involved in this. So it's you know the descendants of Shem as much as it is the descendants of Ham. Now what they're doing is rebellious on at least two different levels. Number one, they're they're building a tower to heaven, which is a you know, an arrogant primitive sort of attempt to usurp God's authority, kind of a a physical way of storming His realm, so to speak. Um, They're undertaking to be God themselves. And in doing that, furthermore, they're seeking to make a name for themselves. Uh, They're not seeking after God's glory, they're seeking after their own glory. And in seeking after their own glory, it's clear uh, that it will be a glory that they win for themselves. Uh, they're not looking uh, for God to do anything for them. They're going to take it upon themselves uh, and bring their own glory to themselves. So, you see that what, what, what's occurring in Genesis chapter 11 uh, is, you know, once again, uh, indicative of the depth of man's sinfulness. And really, the, the sinfulness of it, it seems to me is most clearly indicated by God's reaction to it. You can oftentimes gauge. Uh, the, the depth of depravity, by the way, that the Lord reacts to it, and in God's reaction to this particular rebellion in verses five through nine, you see uh, through God's eyes the, the wickedness of it. And in verses five through nine, God sees what mankind is doing, and in judgment upon it, He disperses humanity and He confuses their tongues. So essentially, God scatters them over the earth and gives them. You know a, a huge variety of languages that they speak, so um Genesis chapter eleven starts off pretty poorly. Uh, mankind is uh, he didn't last long before it fell back into sin with Noah in chapter nine, but by the time you get to chapter eleven, uh, things are again sunk to a pretty low state, but then in verse ten of chapter eleven uh, the scriptures draw our attention back specifically to the line of Shem. Now, if you remember back in uh, chapter 9, verse 26, when Noah had been um, justly reacting when um, he had found when he had awoken from his drunkenness, uh, he cursed Ham, he most clearly blessed Shem, and also gave a, uh, a, say a lesser blessing to Jacob. But, Back there in 9, verse 26, uh, it was made pretty clear that Shem would be the line of promise, that as God was preserving the seed of the woman, as God was advancing his covenantal purposes, it would come through the line of Shem. And so then in verse 10 of chapter 11, when the scriptures return to the line of Shem, uh, it essentially brings back to mind that God does have these promises. He is pursuing them. Given what had happened in the first nine verses of the chapter, um, you certainly are mindful that we're still dealing with rebellious sinners. But nonetheless, uh, this return to the genealogy of Shem uh, is a reminder that God is still at work. Now, you get that sense all the more strongly as you get down toward the end of chapter 11, uh, verses 26 through 32. They're closing out the chapter. Uh, the genealogy ends by giving a rather detailed account of the sons of Terah. Uh, Terah had three sons Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. <clears throat> so, by the time you get here to the end of Genesis chapter 11, uh, on the one hand, there's not, particularly speaking from a human perspective, there's not too terribly much room for optimism. Man is proving remarkably resilient in his ability to rebel against God's grace, uh, his hard-heartedness and stiff neck, uh, sin is very clearly entrenched in the heart of man. You can't read Genesis 11 and not get that pretty clearly. But on the other hand, there is this glimmer of hope. Now, God still does have his line of promise. Uh, evidently, the descendants of Shem were involved in the rebellion on the plains of Shinar, but nonetheless, they still are the line of God's promise. There is still uh, cause for optimism. Um, later on in chapter 14, uh, you meet Melchizedek, and there's not too terribly much detail given about him, but it seems to at least indicate that he's older than Abraham. Um, so there was, uh, you know, prior to Abraham's birth, and certainly prior to Abraham's call, God was at work in and through Melchizedek. Uh, there seems to be some consensus that Job, of the book of Job, uh, lived in the period between uh, Noah and Abram. So it's not as if God was taking a back seat and just watching between Noah and Abram. Uh, but the, what the purpose that the scripture seems to be making, uh, as you draw to the close of chapter 11, uh, they seem to be making the point that God's covenantal purposes were not, at least visibly, flourishing. God still was at work, but sin was again uh, over flooding the world. Um, but then you get to chapter 12. The things have gotten pretty dark in chapter 11. But then you get to chapter 12, verse 1, and God calls Abram. Now, the, the reason that I you know, spend a couple of minutes mentioning the sinfulness of Noah and the Tower of Babel and all of that is that the All of the events prior to chapter 12 set the grace of chapter 12, verse 1, in much stronger contrast or much sharper relief. Uh, From the very start, uh, the grace of God in calling Abram is made evident by what has come before, uh, particularly in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, Given what you've seen in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Genesis, it's abundantly clear if there's going to be anything positive to come out of the relationship between God and man, it's going to have to be entirely by God's sovereign initiative. It's going to have to be His grace because um, mankind is again, rapidly running to rebellion. And so from the very start, before you know any particulars about God's covenant with Abram, it's very clear that God is in a sense hunting Abram down. God is seeking Abram out. Um, Abram uh, isn't looking for God. He's not uh, trying to find the righteous way. God has come after Abraham. Now, later on in the scriptures, uh, in the book of Joshua, uh, that's made particularly clear uh, in Joshua chapter 24. Um, in Joshua 24, verses 2 and 3, uh, the, the sovereign grace of God, line and back of Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, is made more explicit. Uh, there in Joshua 24, Joshua is addressing all the assembled Israelites. And he says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, uh, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Joshua there is making the point, quite bluntly, that Abraham was a pagan. Uh, When God sought Abram out, Abram was in the practice of kneeling to other gods. Uh, Now, the way that the scriptures had described Noah, people very often uh, wrongly think of Noah as uh, a man out looking for God and finding God, a man who was righteous and because of that, God liked him. Now, we saw how that's not what the scriptures tell us, but that oftentimes is the impression that people get But you can't get that impression from Abram. You can't make that same sort of mistake. It's very clear that God is seeking after Abram long before Abram even has any knowledge of God. Abram is a pagan, and God seeks him down, or seeks him out, and draws him to himself. Uh, The the starting point of the Abrahamic covenant is one of utterly unmerited, uh, completely free grace. Uh, to a sinful man living among sinful men, God comes and he calls. Now, in the, the calling itself, God's calling of Abram, uh, there's some question uh, about the precise timing of the call, the precise timing of when God called Abram. Uh, if you look at chapter 11, verse 32, uh, it says, even up into uh, 31, it says that Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot uh, and they they went out with him from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan and they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. And then you get into chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram. And then in verse 4, of chapter 12, it says, "So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with them. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran." Now, given you know 11:31 down through 12:4, it can give the impression that Abram is in Haran when God called, that he and he's traveled with his father and his uh, what Abram's nephew and some other family members. Now they've traveled from Ur to Haran, Tyre dies, and God calls Abram from there in Haran. But then later on, in chapter 15, chapter 15, verse 7 of Genesis, God explicitly refers to himself as the God who called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. So there it things that God called Abram when he was in Ur, and that's what precipitated his trip to Haran. Uh, that's also the, the impression you get in the New Testament uh, in Acts chapter 7 verses 2 and 3 where Stephen is addressing the Sanhedrin and Stephen there very clearly says uh, that God's call came to Abram and the words of Stephen he says when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. So you know, this is one of those places where people would try to nitpick uh, try to raise all these issues about exactly when uh, God's call came to Abram. Uh, did it come uh, prior to his uh, leaving Ur, or did it come in Ur and precipitate his trip, or did it come later, once he was essentially halfway to Canaan in Terran? Uh, it seems to me that what, you know, given the fullness of what the scriptures say, Probably what happened is that, Abra- that God called Abram uh, while he was in Ur. Abram began his travels there uh, because of the call of God. He reached Haran. When he was in Haran, his father died. And in light of that earlier call, which is then recorded for the first time in Genesis 12, uh, Abram continues westward. That seems to me that's probably uh, the, the order in which it went. Now, I I mention that just because it it comes up with some frequency uh, in some of the literature on uh, Abram. It's not too terribly important, but to me it's not really a big problem. Uh, Some people like to get hung up on it, but I don't think it's uh, a big issue. Uh, Besides the fact in chapter 12, verse 1, uh, the the language there is not uh, not so rigid that it really leads to any problems. Uh, if, you, if you're looking at the, the Hebrew, uh, in chapter 12, verse 1, uh, the verb that's used there is, uh, or the, the, as it appears there, is viyomer. Uh, it's a call imperfect. perfect. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, either that the Lord said or that the Lord had said. Uh, if you're translation you use, uh, some translations read, Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family, which would lead you to think that the call had come previously in Ur. Uh, other translations uh, say the Lord said to Abram, which would lend you to read it more as if uh, the call came in Heron uh, after the death of Abram's father. You know, either, either rendering the verb is possible um, and like I say, course well, now I guess I'm falling into the trap of getting hung up on it. Well, when I'm saying, it shouldn't be to but maybe I should stop with that. Uh, it's not a, if, if you come across that particular issue uh, in any reading that you do in the future about covenant God, I think it's, it's a needless, uh, needless argument. Um, what's important is that God has very clearly, sovereignly and graciously called Abraham. And in that calling, in God's calling of Abraham in Genesis 12, Uh, we have the commencement of the Abrahamic covenant, Uh, the commencement of this uh, relationship within parameters, as we've said that a covenant is. Um, And as I said a couple minutes ago, some theologians don't include Genesis 12 in their overall understanding of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, John Murray, as I said a couple minutes ago, he's one of them. and some of that reticence on Murray's part and on the part of others—any uh, guess what it might be? Given Murray's track record for finding covenants, the word does so not The word "the word does not appear in Genesis 12. So, uh, given Murray's uh, expectation that it should, he it, you know, that doubtlessly fuels his. Uh, exclusion of Genesis chapter 12. Uh, And you you, you can't deny it, Berit doesn't appear in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, The first time that Berit is used in relation to Abram uh, comes in Genesis 15 verse 18 um, in the the covenant solemnizing ceremony there. And again, admittedly, in Genesis 15 verse 18, the language used is Karat barit, uh, which, if you all remember, only well, what the different ways that Barik can be used and expressed in the scripture. We said that Karat, uh, to cut a covenant, is most often used uh, to refer to the inauguration of a covenant, to, to the starting up of a covenant. Um, and it, that, that is the way that it's presented in Genesis 15. But when we get when we look closely at Genesis 15 verse 18, and we'll we'll look at Genesis 15 in more detail uh, later, but if if you look at Genesis 15 verse 18, the covenant that's being cut there in Genesis 15 uh, is being established by way of confirming the explicit promises of Genesis chapter 12. Uh, The covenant being cut in Genesis 15 is clearly and self-consciously intended to bring Abram assurance of the promises of Genesis chapter 12. And there's an organic unity between the promises of chapter 12 and the covenant being cut in chapter 15. And it seems to me that 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 unity requires us to say that here in Genesis chapter 12, God is initiating his covenantal relationship with Abraham. It's a relationship that then will go on to be formally and solemnly cut, so to speak, in Genesis chapter 15. Um, if you remember back with Noah, we've seen how God spoke of making a covenant with Noah prior to the flood and then again after the flood. So, you know, some people say that that's two different covenants that God's making with Noah. But as we said in that case, uh, those two references are referring to the same covenant, that they're always, um, you know, in, in the striking of covenants, Uh, The formal covenant inauguration always is preceded by what you might call preparatory action, kind of a lead-up to the covenant itself. Um, The the cutting of a covenant in the scriptures, quite simply, never catches you off guard. You always see it coming. There's always preparatory work for it. And the same thing is true here uh, in the relationship between Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. Uh, you, you need to include Genesis chapter 12 in your understanding of God's covenant with Abraham because in chapter 12, God is initiating that relationship. And that relationship that then is uh, so sort of solemnly ratified in verse or chapter 15. So, um, any questions on that? why that's such a big thing Well it's um it's big because um well, it's big because we're gonna talk about it next. Um, okay. because, um but I think that I think you, you could probably say um you you could say either that it's the commencing of the covenant or it's I, I, if, if I had to choose, I would say it's uh, commencement the covenant. It's beginning. It, it, it is preparatory, but it's preparatory in a united sort of way. Um, if you basically, if, if you want to understand what the covenant, God's covenant with Abram, is and entails, you have to include Genesis twelve understanding. which I think you call it the commencement of the probably. Yeah, hopefully it'll be somewhat clear what. But the um on the one hand, the there's a there's a, a distinction between on the one hand the creation mandates and then on the other hand uh, more redemptive actions. And the creation mandates are part of man's obligation to God as our creator, but that in a sense it is separate from his, from God's redemptive activity with his people. And so, you know, part of our duty as preachers is to subdue all the earth. But then through God's redemption he places his people in a land from which he then later sends the gospel out to the dispersed people. Um, it's not um, so you know, I mean the, the the dispersion of people is more of a non-redemptive um, obligation, whereas for the pur- for his redemptive purposes, God congregates people for a time, and then um, I think it's somewhat relevant in Acts chapter eight, you find God then again using the persecution of Saul and other enemies of the church, to again disperse the church from Jerusalem. Uh, they were kind of huddled in Jerusalem and because of persecution they spread out from Jerusalem. And you see the gospel going to Samaria and to uh, the Ethiopian so I think it's, um, It was a, a congregation of people in one area, in, in one locality just for a time. But then God moved forward in that apostolic era. I don't know if that's it all. Yeah, that at all. that's interesting. Uh, I think confusing, you you want it. to it. If it purposes, do you want to the place So I think, um, so like at, uh, Robertson, uh um, talked a good bit about how, uh, when we Come to terms with the covenant works and the creation mandate mandate within that, and then a continuous presence. It keeps it, us mindful that God's redemption is more than just saving the souls of His people. And certainly, that's an integral part of it. But God also, as far the covenant all God is redeeming all of creation, uh, and in um in, in Sending, sending out man throughout the earth to, to secure it. God is, through them, caring for the world. And then when redemption comes to the gospel, going out to the men who have dispersed themselves throughout the earth, um, that redemption spreads to all over the earth. If man had always stayed congregated in one era, area, and then redemption had uh, come to men, then there was a vast expanse of God's creation that had not been subdued and brought up in the sway of the At least an initial thought on that. Um, in the other, um, okay, so in uh, chapter 12, verse 1. You know, we see that out of the sovereign grace, God is initiating uh, this covenantal relationship with Abram. And what, what's the first thing, you know, after God so clearly, unilaterally initiated this relationship, what's the first thing that he gives to Abram in verse 1? The first thing he gives him is a commandment. Uh, actually, there in verse 1, in a rapid-fire, staccato sort of fashion, God gives Abram four different commands uh, within the scope of one verse. Uh, First, Abram is to leave his country, uh, essentially leave his homeland, more or less. Uh, He's to leave his family, and he's to leave behind those whom he loved, And now we find that Abram is allowed to take uh, his wife, he's allowed to take Lot, who is his nephew, who has been uh, entrusted to him, Abram's care evidently when Lot's father, Abram's brother, had died. Um, So Abram does take some of his family with him, but it's almost as if uh, Abram loses his support network, to use modern terms. But he keeps those for whom he is a support network. He um, keeps those who depend on him, uh, but leaves those upon whom he might have depended. So he leaves his country, he leaves his family, he leaves the command. He's commanded that leave his country. He's commanded to leave his family. He's commanded to leave his father's house, no, which um, has to do with authority structure. He's coming out from under his father's authority. He's uh, assuming sole authority of himself and his family. Uh, and then, fourthly, he's commanded to go to a land that God will show it. Now, the thing it's notable there that God doesn't tell Abram what this land is, where the land is, how far away it is, how long they to get there. Uh, Abram really knows nothing about the land except for the fact that God's telling him to go there. Now, if you you think about that fourfold command that God has given to to Abram, you realize that God is asking a lot of Abram. He's asking him to leave behind everything. His family, his home, his heritage, uh, any sort of expectation that he would have had for his life, Uh, in a sense, Abram really is called to lay down his entire identity in order to go to a land about which God has really told him nothing. Um, As you see in verse 4 of chapter 12, Abram is 75 years old when God makes this weighty command to him. It's not as if Abram's a a thrill seeker. Uh, Granted, people live Longer than so 75 wasn't as old then as it is now, but um, Abram was been very settled where he was. Uh, the, the the commands that God is giving to given to Abram are not just kind of empty sham sort of commands. It's not a, a trite formality. Uh, God is putting real difficult commands to Abram, and he's requiring Abram to obey. Yeah, Abram has to go to out of his country away from his family, away from his father's house, and to this land that God to show him. Now, here again, uh, we're seeing once more the same thing that we saw with Noah. <coughs> A God very clearly, he's sovereignly and he graciously initiates his covenant with Abram, but that divine initiative doesn't preclude the importance and really the necessity of obedient response. Uh, You have both gracious, divine initiative and meaningful human responsibility. Uh, God's sovereign initiative doesn't render human response superfluous, and that human response doesn't earn uh, gracious uh, engagement, Uh, but rather the, the sovereign, gracious initiative creates the context in which obedient response is possible. Uh, the context in which it's meaning, uh, Abram, in a certain sense, very much <clears throat> is passive in the initiation of this covenant. God is the one established But, Abram's gracious inclusion <clears throat> in the covenant elicits his obedient response. And you can't have either one without the other. You have to have the gracious initiative first. Um, absolutely, it has to be first. But then also... Uh, the obedient response has to follow. Now, here again, if you <clears throat> have detected me getting on one of my hobby horses, uh, I'm trying to highlight again uh, the, the fallacy of the distinction between the law covenant and promise covenant. I'm just curious, this, this is the vision that Horton makes, I'm not Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the covenant that, that Horton makes and others as well, but, yeah, that you you have some covenants that are promise covenants in which God just unilaterally gives, and there's no, really no place for command within the covenant. And then you have law covenant on the other hand, where essentially everything hinges on man's obedience. Um, and the dichotomy that's drawn is so sharp that it is even you know, pretty explicitly said that when you look at a covenant, you have to put it in one box or the other. And uh, the the point I'm trying to hopefully highlight is that essentially, if if you have to take every covenant and put it in either the law covenant box or the promise covenant box, then there's nowhere you can put Abraham in the covenant because it's not entirely either one. Um, It couldn't have happened without divine initiative, obviously, by God's grace alone. But likewise, there's command uh, given to Abraham uh, within this covenant relationship. Uh, that, I mean, think it, it's, it's a, a distinction that's too sharply drawn. I, I guess we'll get um, You have both divine initiative and uh, a subsequently necessary human response. Uh, and that, I think that pretty, it, it grabs you pretty clearly uh, as you read even just Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. You don't have to go past verse 1. Uh, you have uh, the sheer grace of God and calling. Abram, and then you have the necessary human response in those commands that God's given to him. Um, and so that, uh, yeah, I think you, from, from the very start of God's covenant with Abram, uh, you have that that dynamic coming out. Uh, God graciously initiates a covenant in which Abram has responsibility. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the reasons, and we'll go on to say something more, but one of the reasons Why it's important to include chapter 12 in our understanding of the Abrahamic covenant. If you just begin with uh, chapter 15, then you begin with God um, graciously confirming promises to Abram, which he certainly does, but that comes after chapter 12, where God had uh, graciously sought out Abram and then called him to obedience which, as verse 4 says, um, Abram renders. Verse 4 says that Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. It it, it all begins with this dynamic between divine initiative and human response. Um, But of course, there's more to chapter 12 than just the commands in verse 1. When you get into verses 2 and 3, You see that God makes some some pretty staggering promises to Abram. Uh, If, if you're being very precise, you can find seven different promises that God makes to Abram here in these verses. Uh, Dr. Kerr delineates seven promises, which there certainly are seven promises there. But I think for our for our purposes those seven can really be boiled down to three promises. Um, God promises Abram that, that he'll give him a seed, he'll give him descendants, that, that he'll give him a land, and that he will make him a blessing to all the nations. It's kind of a, a simplified version of God's promises Abraham to Abram. He'll give him a seed, he'll give him a land, and he'll make him a blessing to all the nations. Now those, they aren't they're distinct promises; they're all their own promise, but they're also all very much related to each other. Um, if the people the seed that God will give to Abram will fill the land that Abram gives to them, and from that land they will be a blessing to all the nations. Uh, so it's uh, three distinct promises, but they're also all very much uh, interrelated, and they work together uh, to achieve God's covenantal purpose. Um, Any questions, so far? Well, um, we might stop there. Before I I hate to be right in the middle of the promises section when the the hour ends, Um, but we'll we'll, we'll pick up next week with the promises that God makes to Abram. Look at them a little bit more detail there, verses two and three, and then. Hopefully next week, if we move quickly, we can get through most, if not all, of April.